Bert and John Jacobs grew up in a normal household with normal parents and four siblings. Every night at the dinner table, family practiced a ritual that was led by their mom, Joan. And she would always ask every night, tell me something good that happened today. As they grew up and left home, the struggles are a business telling their art. Bert and John never had that thought quite far from their mind. Even when they were living out of the van, uh, when they were sleeping in their van every night, selling t-shirts on college campuses up and down the East Coast, uh, had to combine seven eight dollars because the ladies were impressed with their van. <laughs> they began to live that way. They still kind of thought about that. Everything was ongoing conversation of what they could do to counter the daily flood of negative news in the world. And as they came to continue work on that, there was one idea, there was one sketch, one little three-word phrase that changed everything. This is the sketch. This is the phrase, life is good. They determined they were going to give themselves to spreading this idea of optimism. And since that time, several decades ago now, the Life is Good company has developed hundreds of whimsical products. You've seen them everywhere. Uh, and on t-shirts and hats and tire covers and mugs and keychains, home people celebrate the things that they enjoy. This is what makes life good, and, and I enjoy this. Now, you have one thing, probably. One thing you do that if it were on a Life is Good t-shirt or a mug, you'd automatically buy it. And that's great. We celebrate that. But we also know that that's not all that's true about life. Life is not perfect. Life is not easy. The reality is that many times life is hard. They don't make t-shirts for that. Life's hard. Suffering happens. That's just, that's just the truth. It happens to us, around us, in moments, and seasons for years, you get a bad report from a doctor, an act of disaster like a volcano or a flash flood, you, something happens at your house, or families disintegrated, dreams die, or governments uh, kind of go off the rails, and you just never know what's going to happen. Life's hard for everybody, and disciples of Jesus don't escape it. We don't get a pass. Here's people who talk about faith, and they caricature Christian faith as if somehow those who follow Jesus, are, when they trust Christ, are able to move in some kind of little, little suffering-less bubble. We live in that bubble, and in that bubble is where we sing our songs, and that bubble is where we hashtag bless on our social media, and in that bubble is where we kind of live inside of those airbrushed, wonderful, fuzzy photos that we put slogans on on Pinterest, and we live inside of that. And that's our world. And all the poor people outside, they gasp and they weep and they ache, and that's just the way it is. And there's a name for that. We call it denial. It's not dealing with the reality of the way things actually are. Disciples of Jesus will suffer. It becomes a part of this thing that we call life of faith. So this summer, we've been talking about what it means to be, to be rooted in Christ, to our roots, to be firm and faithful and and what kinds of disciplines or activities we want to do to have those kind of deep roots. Starting from Colossians chapter 2, where it says this, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So what does it mean, what does it take to, to be rooted in that way, in our faith, in our soul life. And so far, we've said, well, it involves a, a relationship with Jesus. It involves ordering our life by God's Word. It involves praying and having conversations with God. And then we're going to say it involves how we deal with suffering. 
that comes in our life. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Life punches you in the gut, hurricane winds blow, and you need some deep roots to continue to stand firm in that place. And we're getting at these ideas by looking at uh, the life and the experience and the teaching of Peter. Peter, that blue-car fisherman called to follow Jesus, part of Jesus' inner circle. He's impetuous, he's passionate, he's committed. His mistakes and successes. And so looking at principles from, from his writing from First Peter and Second Peter, that's kind of his mature faith. And we're looking back at some experience he had in his life that was how he maybe learned that lesson, how he practiced that. So the principle we'll look at this morning is this. For disciples of Jesus, suffering is inevitable, but always purposeful. Suffering is inevitable, but always purposeful. This morning we'll be in First Peter. So you go ahead and turn there in your copy of the Bible to First Peter. Go to that letter toward the from the back part of the New Testament. This first letter is addressed to what he called the elect exiles of the dispersion. So there were there were many who come to faith in Christ, and for them out of a Jewish background, but they begun to declare their allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. The problem was in Rome they held that Caesar was Lord and King. So these Christian people were essentially functioning as heretics to their own society. And because of that, they were persecuted economically and socially and physically. So they scattered. They were dispersed to the far corners of the ancient world, but the reach of Rome was long. They didn't get away from it completely. So Peter writes to encourage them as they live out their faith in Christ, to be faithful in the middle of all of that. And what do you point that in this are three things that we see throughout the Bible, three sorts of suffering that faithful disciples will likely encounter. First is this, some suffering comes because we live in a broken world. You've heard us say it before, the world's not as it should be. We live in a broken world, not the way it was designed to be. So in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, hey, you've been born again, you have a living hope, you have an inheritance, that's great, you celebrate that. And then verse 6 says, in this, your salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And grieved by various trials is a lot like what Jesus said when Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble and suffering. You will. Not you might, possibly, ever so often, kind of. No, you will have trouble and suffering that is there. Now, that's not being negative, that's just being realistic. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of life on earth. God created the world that was perfect and good and beautiful and true and provided every need that human beings would need to enjoy life. And it was all centered around this love relationship and obedience with God at the center of everything. But when Adam and Eve rebelled, they said, no, we want to be in charge, we want to be at the center, we want to define things. When that happened, well, uh, they broke the planet. Everything got off what it was supposed to be. It's not of life, there's death, and there's pain, there's loss, and all that entered. So there are things that happen just because we live in a broken world where stuff's not perfect. So you get a screw in your tire, and you get a flat on the way to the appointment that you need to make it on time. The item that broke two days after you bought it, you just got it home. And you get tired and sick. Whether it's a cold or arthritis or cancer, sickness is in it because the plant's not the way it was supposed to be. struggles with systemic injustice that we see 
corporate greed. People stuck in the Charlotte airport this, this week for four days because of a computer glitch. The online order that got lost. Your preferences that caused tension with another person relationally. Cabbage. Cats. All result of the fall. Just telling you, I'm just figuring that out. Right? <laughs> all kinds of things that happen. They're just a mess and they're hard just because the world's difficult. Some suffering comes from a broken world. But some suffering, secondly, comes because of sin and its consequences. To Adam and Eve rebel, there were immediate consequences. They lost intimacy with God. There was physical death entered. There was relational tension between them that spilled over into society. There were emotional burdens like guilt and shame. Sin is rebellion away from the way things are supposed to be, from God's way. So when a person sins, they're running away not only from God's rule, but also from God's, God's love. And that running away always costs us. It says in Romans, right? The ways of sin is death. What you get for choosing to rebel is death. Death of relationships. Death of a sense of God. Death of, of our soul, ultimately, in all those kinds of ways. And so, so we understand that when, when we do that, we operate self-centeredly, there will always be consequences. So Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look over in verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So he recognizes some suffering is legitimate, that God is just. And if we, we, we shake our fist at God and say, I'm going to do things my own way, we insist on operating independently in that way, there will always be consequences. God will not overlook that. So we see things like anger when I want to control everything. Things like greed, which signals a coveting heart that I'm not content. I want what somebody else has. Expressions of lust and to adultery or, or porn or other expressions of, of sexual life in human beings outside of God's plan in marriage. You look at marital tensions many times are because one or both of the spouses is engaging in radical selfishness. Abuse or embezzlement or substances to survive or idolatry of sports or political figures or a lifestyle. We go on and on and on with a thousand things. All those things have consequences. Anything apart from God's plan, God's ways, God's rules has consequences that are painful. So suffering can come because we live in a broken world. This is the way it is. Some suffering comes because we've sinned and there's consequences for that. And then some suffering certainly comes because of a faithful commitment to Christ. And Jesus was really clear about this. He said this. He said, look, I, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men. They'll deliver you over to courts. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. If you're identified with me, you'll find yourself at odds with the world. You will be hated by all. He said, they're not always going to love you. Just because you're a Christian, oh, you're a Christian, great. We love you. We respect you. We're, we're going we're gonna to provide space for you. No. So when Peter writes about this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not weird when you live safely for Jesus and people push back. 
live safely for Christ and difficulties come. He says, don't ex- that's not odd. Don't think that's weird. Don't scream and cry and complain. And he goes on over in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, these same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We know this, surely. Brothers and sisters, we have in our family of Christ across the globe, not just in East Asia where there are security concerns right now, but in other places around the world, to take a stand, to live faithfully for Christ will cause you social pressure, difficulty, economic, and there's persecution real that is there. And yes, it's beginning to come here and show up in our society, and it's just going to continue on. That's just the reality of the way things are. Just don't be surprised. That's not strange. We should never expect that faithfulness to God's Word and ways will be applauded by secular society. God-glorifying priorities are not the same as culture-applauded trends. Let me give you more specific. God-glorifying priorities are not the same as conservative political positions. They're not the same. And so, when you stand for sanctity of life in the womb and at the border, you're likely to get shot at by somebody verbally at the very least. If you hold to God's source views of gender, it'll put you opposite from the culture. If you articulate a Christ-honoring sexual ethic of purity before marriage and radical faithfulness after, you'll be thought of as weird or crude. When you value unseen virtues more than stuff that you can measure by market share or money in your bank and those kinds of things, it will be set you apart. And so when you begin to operate, say, I'm doing this because I'm faithful to Jesus. Don't, that's not weird to be socially ostracized and mocked and legally challenged. So you say, okay, so, so I'm going to read my Bible and pray. I'm going to engage with the faith I'm in church. I'm going to serve the kingdom. I'm going to serve on mission. I'm going to live holy. I'm going to spread the gospel. I'm going to raise my family in Jesus. And I'm going to suffer. What do I do with that? What, how do I respond to that? And Peter tells us, what, what did Jesus do? We read this in First Peter 2. Let's read this together. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus, perfect Son of God, living out God's purpose in the world, finds himself reviled and, and, and persecuted and suffering. And in the middle of that, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God in the middle of that. Now, and what do we do? Well, we say, okay, well, Jesus, we know, knows how to live human life the way God meant to be lived. And we say as disciples, we're going to follow him. So what do we do? Well, look at this verse, also from First Peter. Let's read this together. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Oh, we do the same thing. We entrust our souls, we entrust our lives to a faithful creator. Now notice that there's God's will at play here. God has a purpose. There's a purpose work. That's why we're saying that suffering is, though it's inevitable, it's purposeful. When God 
created you. He established your days in His book. All the days when life is good and life is hard. He has a purpose for those days with your name attached to it. And that purpose will be accomplished so you can trust Him in the middle of that. You can trust Him that He's good and that He's faithful. Just trust yourself to a faith, to a faithful creator, right? Trust yourself to a faithful creator while you're doing good. Continue that. Faithful to do. What's He faithful to do? He's faithful to rescue and to restore. How does He do that? By the gospel of Jesus Christ. His bloody cross where He died for our sins and an empty tomb are the answer to every heartache, every struggle, every pain, every unanswered question of life. Now watch this. If we know that some suffering comes because of brokenness, because the world is, is broken, it's not the way it's supposed to be, what we know is it's the gospel of Jesus Christ reconciles and heals. It puts the broken pieces of the world back together. Oh, well, some suffering comes because of sin and conflict. What's the gospel do? Because of Jesus, there's forgiveness and transformation of life. Oh, then I'm, I'm, I'm serving Christ and I'm still suffering, yes. And you can know that the gospel promises that it will overcome everything, and then ultimately He wins, and there's restoration that comes. So you see, the gospel becomes the answer to all of those levels of suffering. So suffering is inevitable, but purposeful through the gospel. Now that's the principle. And we establish the principle, how does that play out in real time? How, how do we begin to experience and live out, I'm going to trust Him in the midst of my Suffering. So, so leave there. Look over in Acts chapter five. Acts chapter five. Walk with Peter through this moment of suffering he had while he was serving Jesus. So it's after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, it's after Pentecost. It's early in the church's life. The disciples who have been hidden before Pentecost are now proclaiming Jesus. They're spreading the gospel. Men and women are coming to faith out of Judaism, out of paganism. Signs and wonders being done through them. There's healing that's remarkable. And because of that growth, they're kind of causing a stir. They're, they're causing a stir among, not only among the Roman people, but among even the Jewish religious leaders who say they serve God. And, and so they're jealous of their influence and their impact. And so they, they bring Peter and the other apostles kind of stop this thing, and they arrest them, and they put them in jail. And so Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, look what happens here. But during the night, an angel Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So as you begin to live out this idea of trust in your season of suffering, first of all, be confident because God is present with you. Because the angel of the Lord came to them in prison in the middle of the night and opened the jail door. Now, God's angels don't initiate uh, their own plans. Uh, they, they only come on assignment from God. So God sent them specifically to where Peter and the others were in that moment because God saw and knew what was going on. The Lord sees your suffering. Nothing's hidden from Him. He knows every detail, knows every little beat of your heart. You feel through that hurt. But just as notice, He comes in and acts. So here, there were locked doors that opened and chains that fell off and they, they walked out. Now, how does God's presence show up for you in the midst of a season of suffering? Sometimes it will come through the encouraging words 
from a brother or sister. Sometimes it will be through an unexpected provision for a need. Some previously unseen solution to a knotty problem will suddenly come alive. You'll read the Bible, and a verse you've read a hundred, hundred times will suddenly leap out at you and grab onto your heart for that specific difficulty. You'll sense deep, unexplained peace while everything around you is in turmoil. All of those and others are ways God is showing you, I'm with you. In your suffering, you're not alone. God's with you. We say this all the time. We talk about the 23rd Psalm. The Lord's my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So in the midst of your suffering, you can be confident because he is with you. Talk about that faith also in your season of suffering. You can be faithful because God's story is speaking through you. So they're brought out of prison and then they're at daybreak. Around the same time, the religious leaders come back to their gathering spot. They get all the things in order in their hearing room and they send for, for Peter and James and John to be brought from prison. And they send them to come and pray. And so the guys come back from there and say, slight problem. All the doors are still locked on the jail. The jailers are still in their spot. But the people who been there last night aren't there anymore. As a matter of fact, they're back in the middle of the street preaching again. Well, they're stunned by that. They don't know what to do. So they send their officers to get them. And it says down in verse 26 that the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they brought them in, and when they set them before the council, verse 27 says, the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now, I remember, in the middle of, of all of this, the, the, the call that still stands, go speak this word of life. So they go, and they even here they speak the gospel, it says they fill the, fill the city with the story of Christ. They tell the gospel at every chance they get of God's welcome to sinners of grace and hope and joy and strength and weakness in the middle of it. They got their sense of me. Suffering and trouble doesn't cancel a disciple's calling from Jesus. It doesn't give us an out. As long as we're breathing, we live to glorify God and love people and make disciples. God and His redemptive purposes remain the priority for life, even in suffering, and God's in charge of them. Notice this, that in a season of suffering, God puts you in a place you might normally be, among people you might not normally see, many of them who need Jesus, and gives you a platform you might not normally have for the sake of the gospel. Now, a disciple who's in trouble, faithfully pointing people to Jesus, has a unique power because nobody expects it. 
Everybody expects when you're in trouble and you're having a hard time and things are difficult for you to center the whole story on yourself and to say, isn't it awful? Look at me. It's terrible. Look at how I'm feeling. And what they do is they flip that and say, let's look at Jesus and see what's going on. And when we flip that story, people lean in and begin to listen because they're not used to hearing anybody talk that way. One of my best friends in the whole world, Daryl Hyatt, contracted melanoma cancer. He was 44. He died at 46. The last year of his life, Daryl just immersed himself in Romans 8, in all of it. They kept coming back to this one verse to bring up over and over again. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And over and over and over, Daryl would say, yeah, this is bad. But Jesus is better, and there's a promise coming. This is bad. Jesus is better. There's a promise that is coming. I have some dear friends who lost a baby. And in the middle of that moment, they begin to share out of their broken heart the, the comfort of Jesus they were receiving. I have a good friend named James who went to a medical crisis a year or so ago, and he was in hospitals here and in, and in, in Boston and, and in Houston and in Lexington. And he said, everywhere I went, he said, I just wouldn't shut up talking about Jesus. <laughs> I kept talking about Jesus wherever it was that I went. So when you're suffering, you keep speaking this word of life. You just tell the story of what you're seeing, what you're sensing with Jesus right in the middle of the troubles. If I'm trusting him, I'm going to be faithful. That story is still speaking, but also in my suffering, in my season of suffering, I'm trusting I'm going to be patient for Thursday because God's working what's best for you. They've really ticked him off now. They've accused him of basically killing the Messiah. And so verse 33 says, when they heard this, the leaders, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council in Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held an honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. We're going to go into executive session, he said. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you have to do with these men. But before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. They took his advice, and when they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And nobody saw Gamaliel coming. The apostles didn't. The religious leaders didn't. But just in this short moment, he reminds the, the religious leaders, hey, hey guys, just remember, your arms are too short to box with God. You don't want to go there. This may not end well for you. He became a defender for the apostles. God's plan at that moment didn't include a graveyard. For Peter and James and the others, something deeper, more beautiful was the work behind the scenes. God's always at work in the quiet, often hidden ways around us to accomplish His purpose. We have a promise. We love to quote, and we put on all our coffee mugs, right? You know this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And we say that, and we remind them that all things are working in the love. We can get forgetful even when we quote it. Because sometimes when we're quoting it, we, in our suffering, we may forget the hope that we actually have that's in that verse. 
singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson about four years ago went through a very deep depression, season of depression. He said there were days when all he could do was just sit on the couch, kind of stare off on his face and just weep. His children walked by, didn't know how to talk to him, what was going on. He said every so often in those moments, his wife Jamie would come to him and she would stand in front of him and she would say, look at me. And she would take his face in her hands to look in my eyes and then she would say, something good is coming. Something good is coming. That's what faith does. That's what hope does in the middle of that Romans 8.28 promise. You know, something we forget that. We can forget how God works, how God does these things. Jesus said this in John 12. He said, look, if a, if a seed, great wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Kentucky farmer and poet Wendell Berry says, when a farmer plants seeds, he wounds the earth. He has to dig into the earth and wound the earth so he can plant the seed. Not because he's angry at the earth, not because he's punishing the earth, but in anticipation of the beauty and the nourishing that will come, he knows that planting is the only way of harvesting and that wounding is the only way to plant what will be harvested. And suffering can feel like a wound to our very souls. Unless that something is a, a result of sin and its consequences, our Heavenly Father doesn't lead us into, walk us through, allow us into suffering because He's angry or punishing or vindictive because He knows that's the only way to get the beauty out of the life that He sees is if we walk through that kind of suffering and that kind of brokenness. It's the planting that comes in suffering that allows there to be the harvest of all that is good. And our suffering, we get impatient with that. We want to happen quick and be over, but a good harvest that comes can take time. It's perfect to happen in time. They're measured less by month and day and year, more by eternity. The psalmist in Psalm 27 says, I, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord in your suffering. You need to remember what He's planting, what He's promised to harvest, and you want to hold on to something good coming. That's what trusting Him means. If I'm going to trust Him, I don't want to be patient. I want to be joyful. Because God is growing Christ-likeness in you. Back in Acts 5, verse 40. So they called the apostles, beat them, let them go. They left the friends of the council rejoicing. They were kind of worthy to suffer this greatest honor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now remember, this is the same guy who was intimidated by, by a servant girl into denying that he even knew Jesus. These same guys who were locked in a room, terrified what happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. And now they're not as willing to suffer for the name, to be identified with him and to further his cause, but they find joy in it. So look here, you got Peter, James, John, the other apostles, they're there, right? And they're bloodied, and they're beaten, and they're threatened, and they're rejoicing. Look at them. Now look at Jesus. 
going to the cross. And Hebrews 12 says, Look into Jesus, the author and founder of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Oh, Jesus, while suffering for God's purposes, is God's joy defining Him. Oh, they're just like Jesus. They're just like Jesus. The response to the suffering confirms who they are. Their response to Him in suffering confirms that they actually belong to Him. Now remember, God's ultimate purpose in everything is to make us like Jesus. In our minds, to think the way He does, our hearts captivated by the same passions, character, shaped by the same qualities, actions, motivated by the same things. And He'll use troubles to transform us like Him, and that should bring us great joy. From 1660 to 1672, John Bunyan, who was a Baptist pastor, the author of, of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, was in jail for preaching the gospel. Hey, they let him out, but he, he said, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. And when he wrote about this later, here's what he said. He said, I never had in all my life so great an outlet into the Word of God as now. See, do you understand what Psalm 119 said? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place, in prison, to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also is never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen Him and felt Him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never while in this world be able to express them. Were it lawful, He said, I would pray for greater trouble than greater comfort. And if I, I'd have greater trouble, more struggle, if I could just know more of Jesus like like this. See, listen, many times the most important thing is not what's going on around you, but what God's doing in you. Some way, somehow, in the Father's hands, troubles and suffering help you and I know Jesus better, become more like Him, make much of Him, and that's a joy both to us and those around us. Yeah. Life's hard. And I wonder what suffering you, you carry in here today. What troubles weigh your heart? Whether from the brokenness of the world or sin and its consequences and try to be faithful to Jesus. Your Father cares. He's with you. And though God may not deliver you from trouble, He has a way through the tough trouble that's working with something good and beautiful in you and through you. And here's the glory of the story. No matter how hard it is now for, for months or for years, it's not forever. So when Peter writes his letter at the end of it, First Peter 5, 10, he says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a sweet promise. The suffering you're going through is not the end of your story. It's not the final part of your story. He is. So Julian of Norwich, an ancient woman who followed Christ, was thought of saying this, All shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. With Christ, you go in and through the pain and the questions and the grief and the heartache and the troubles and the bruising, and you don't just get the t-shirt. You get the help. You get the hope. Because with Christ, no matter what comes, life 
is good. Let's stand together and pray. So, Father, in these moments, having heard your word and encountered the realities of your your good gospel today, knowing our lives, Lord, you know where we are. So, Father, maybe some here this morning who are experiencing trouble simply because they have no relationship with you. So maybe today would be a day they might come and kneel here and trust you to take away their sin and give them your life. But there's a lot of other people here today, Lord, who are trying to follow you and they're being slammed by the world or trying to stay faithful to Jesus and find themselves suffering. So in these moments, Lord, would you help us to express our faith, our trust, our delight in you in the midst of our trouble. Maybe even our coming and kneeling here would be a way of saying, that's the way I'm going to see it from now on, that it's yours and I'm opening my hands for you to take it. So Lord, would you help us in these moments to trust you, trust your goodness. We love you. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You come and pray as we worship together.